So I'm, I'm here today, and the topic I'm going to discuss is financial innovation. And I think it's of great importance uh, to us as we learn more um, about what caused the financial crisis that we just came through, um, and as we work uh, around the country to shape uh, the future of our financial system. Uh, right now, um, many people are very hostile to the very thought of financial innovation. After all, uh, wasn't it financial products and um, instruments that were brand new that, that got us into this mess, things like subprime mortgages and complex derivative instruments? Um, the answer here, as with many things in economics, is both yes and no. So in my view, the question isn't really whether financial innovation is inherently uh, good or bad. I don't think that's the right way to frame the issue. Instead, we ought to be thinking about whether financial innovation in any given circumstance, in, in any particular settings, um, is um, improving people's well-being. And that should be our focus. I think whether it is or not depends largely on the regulatory structure surrounding the financial system uh, and the banking system in particular. So innovations uh, in financial arrangements, uh, like innovations in any other sector um, are shaped by the incentives uh, that people face. This is sort of an ob a commonplace observation. Uh, but we need to take that and draw out the implications of that. In many cases, these incentives do well at aligning the interests of the innovators with those of society as a whole. New goods or services or new ways of organizing production um, are often profitable only to the extent that they provide something that consumers value or they reduce the real cost of producing something. Indeed, this is why the innovations that have been the engine of economic growth over the last several centuries, both here in Western Europe and around the globe, um, are, are, have resulted in such profound improvements in the well-being of, of people around the world. The financial world, though, is heavily regulated, very heavily regulated. And as a result, the incentives are heavily influenced by the regulatory regime in place. In many instances, financial innovation is aimed at regulatory bypass, where firms adapt to the rules they face and create instruments to effectively work around those constraints. Some cases of regulatory bypass, as I'll discuss, have beneficial effects they're good for society. Some have negative effects, and some have both effects. So I'm going to be getting into that and exploring that here uh, with you this morning. One of the most conspicuous features of the environment faced by financial market participants is the presence of uh, what I'll call the federal financial safety net. You'll hear me talking about the, the safety net a lot this morning. And this is the explicit and implicit commitments of the federal government to rescue creditors of distressed financial firms in order to limit what's called, you know, financial instability. So deposit insurance is a, uh, is a, a, a familiar example of um, the federal government safety net, explicit program to guarantee deposits. Uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, a federally sponsored enterprise, uh, an agency that ensures um, a, a, an amount of pension uh, liabilities for private uh, corporate uh, workers. Um, so those are examples of explicit uh, government support. But the safety net also includes implied support. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about some examples of that. This safety net influences the direction of financial innovation. 
firms that benefit from a government backstop are willing to forego costly measures that would protect them against runs or liquidity pressures uh, that they they that that might elicit government protection. Um, just as property owners overinvest on a floodplain, knowing that uh, in a disaster they'll be reimbursed uh, by a third party. The precedents set by this most recent financial crisis extended government support far more broadly than before, and these have dramatically expanded the implicit safety net. Um, and in fact, it's it's gotten to be so that where the, the safety net is about two thirds of the financial sector. About two thirds of financial sector liabilities are essentially implicitly or explicitly uh, supported by a government backstop. Now, ideally, the extent of an implied government support uh, arrangement would be matched by the scope of prudential regulation uh, to contain the moral hazard uh, that would otherwise encourage excessive risk-taking. This is why we regulate banks that, uh, whose deposits we insure. Um, so ideally, those would match up. But this wasn't the case leading up to the crisis, and it's not clear that recent reforms have succeeded in closing that gap or limiting the extent of the safety net uh, materially. As a result, I think there's a substantial risk that much future financial innovation is going to be directed at bypassing regulations and exploiting the safety net rather than improving people's well-being. Before, again, with the, before I begin with the body of my remarks, though, I should note my usual disclaimer, uh, which is that uh, the views expressed here today are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of any other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. So there's some innovations in the broader economy that I think we'd all agree have benefited uh, society greatly. And one example that's particularly salient here in Roanoke uh, is the development of railroads to, to move commercial goods long distances. Railroads are less costly, more efficient than previous modes of transport, made our economies, um, made our U.S. economy much less of a regional one and more of a national economy. This was an innovation that led to significant gains for most people in their well-being. Uh, firms have found other ways to move goods recently, large-scale trucking, for example, um, but both of those, the development of the rail system and the trucking system, uh, were driven by were, were not driven by any desire to escape regulation. They were, they were driven by the intrinsic benefits um, involved. They simply met the needs of an industrialized nation. And there's similar examples in the financial sector. Uh, one involves the use of advanced advances in computing and communications technologies to improve the rating of risks associated with potential borrowers. Uh, this was a particularly f powerful force in the evolution of the market for unsecured credit uh, from the 1980s on, credit cards and the like. It allowed lenders to make finer distinctions among borrowers, and that in turn allowed uh, creditors, uh, that in turn uh, allowed lenders to lend profitably um, to some consumers at a lower interest rate spread than they otherwise uh, would have to have charged. For example, virtually all credit cards 30 or 40 years ago uh, charged a single rate, 19.8%. Some of you may remember that. Um, but improvements in underwriting allowed lenders to charge lower rates to some less risky customers. In addition, it, it allowed them to find less creditworthy customers that still actually would qualify. Um, customers that were creditworthy, even though previously they'd been among those who were thought to not qualify for credit. 
This greatly expanded the access uh, to credit, and it gave households greater flexibility in managing their finances, uh, adjusting to temporary financial shocks, such as an unexpected car repair bill or medical expenses, and in accumulating durable goods in a more convenient way than they otherwise would have to. The expansion of access to unsecured credit also brought along with it an increase in the frequency of adverse outcomes um, in which households maybe ran up too much debt um, or perhaps defaulted on a payment obligation. I think the evidence, the empirical evidence is very strong that the net effect of expanded access to unsecured uh, consumer credit has been beneficial uh, to consumers broadly. There are other examples, though, where regulations did play a significant role in financial innovation. Consider the development of money market mutual funds. I'll call these money funds for short. These invest in short-term commercial paper um, and uh, short-term treasury securities, and they provide investors with daily access to, your, to their funds. You can get it out any day you want. Money funds provide a close substitute for bank deposits, but they circumvent the prohibition um, on interest on demand deposits for corporations. Corporations, until July 21st of this year, are not allowed to earn interest on bank deposits. Um, this was a clear case of a financial innovation driven by regulation, one that brought clear benefits to investors, including many, many consumers. Money market mutual funds, however, were also a source of instability uh, during the recent financial crisis. Uh, when Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, their commercial paper became locked up in bankruptcy court, and the market value of the commercial paper issued by other financial institutions fell. One money fund was forced to break the buck because the underlying valuations of its portfolio had fallen too far below a dollar. This led to a run, uh, ma massive withdrawals by institutional investors on money funds that held commercial paper like Lehman's. Um, and and they, they did that in order to avoid um, uh, taking a capital loss uh, in the event that they stayed in the fund. As an aside here, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission actually has a rule that exacerbates this uh, feature, that gives uh, investors an extra incentive to run if they expect capital losses. Policymakers uh, then intervened uh, with an insurance program for pre-existing money fund balances, and the Federal Reserve uh, intervened with lending programs to support commercial paper prices. It's not, it was not clear prior to the crisis that these firms were inside the federal financial safety net, yet many fund managers and many investors may have perceived that to be the case given historic instances in which, uh, for example, the collapse of Penn Central, in which the Federal Reserve provided extra liquidity support uh, to these markets, the commercial paper market in particular. The precedents set during, by the intervention during this most recent crisis have led to a significant increase, as I said, in the scope of the implied safety net. Uh, people are investors are likely to expect similar support should the money market mutual fund industry experience what it did in late 2008. Prior to the crisis, policymakers pursued a strategy uh, that has been dubbed constructive ambiguity about the boundaries of the safety net who would be supported, who, who would not be supported. They were ambiguous, and they called it constructive ambiguity, believing it was a positive um, strategy. The basic belief behind that strategy was um, that it would lead firms to believe they might not receive uh, safety net support, but it would allow policymakers the flexibility 
to bail out institutions if they deemed it necessary. Instead of reducing expectations about the likelihood of bailouts, though, constructive ambiguity, as I, I recently argued in congressional testimony last week, did exactly the opposite. Policy makers tended to err on the side of intervention. And I'll explain the, the reasons why that. There are good incentives they had to do that. Um, they tended to rescue creditors of failing financial firms more often than they wanted those creditors to believe. And the inevitable result is that market expectations caught up with reality and the likelihood, the perceived likelihood of bailouts increased over time. The ultimate result of constructive ambiguity was that the implicit safety net grew to include much of the what's called the shadow banking system. And I'll talk more about that um, in a minute. Researchers at the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank have estimated that at the end of 2009, the implicit safety net, it's, you know, not deposit insurance or the PBGC, just the implicit safety net, covered as much as 40% of all financial sector liabilities. And when you combine that with the explicit protection of deposit insurance and some other programs, the overall federal financial safety net covered 62% of the financial sector. And that's up from what we estimate as 45% at the end of 1999. Overall, then, I think it's fair to say that the policy of constructive ambiguity has failed utterly. If we learn one thing from it, the financial crisis, it should be that we have to establish a credible commitment regarding which assets will benefit from government safety net support and which will not. Otherwise, the boundary of the safety net is going to continue to expand. Establishing such credibility is going to be a difficult challenge to meet. It may require policymakers to let an institution fail, even if creditors believe that it is implicitly guaranteed and have acted so. Doing so, to be sure, could cause some short-term disruptions in the financial sector as investors have to revise their expectations about future intervention in other similar cases. But in the long run, establishing credibility about which firms are going to receive protection and which will not is the key to avoiding, I believe, the type of financial instability that we observed in 2008. It should be fairly obvious that financial firms um, whose creditors benefit from the prospect of official support should be subject to prudential regulation in order to contain the, the moral hazard that arises from the presence of third-party guarantees. The critical weakness of an ambiguous safety net is the mismatch that gives rise to, the mismatch between uh, the scope of the safety net and the scope of uh, the regulations that contain the excessive risk-taking. Some firms will benefit um, from support but not be subject to prudential regulation to prevent excessive risk-taking. This mismatch problem could conceivably be resolved by just expanding regulation to, to cover anything, uh, any institution that policymakers think they, they might in the future potentially want to support. Regulation isn't foolproof, however, and what's more, it imposes significant burdens of its own. It's very costly. It constrains activity um, in burdensome ways. Now, these burdens are difficult to quantify, but I find it hard to believe that the most appropriate size of the government financial safety net is anything close to two-thirds of the financial sector. The mismatch associated with an ambiguous uh, safety net provides a powerful impetus to growth of what's been called the shadow banking system. Uh, and you've probably read about this if you've read about accounts of the financial crisis we've just been through. 
This uh, term, uh, shadow banking, refers to activities that resemble traditional banking, like in, in like deposit taking and the like, in that they involve maturity transformation. Economic term I'll introduce you to now. Maturity transformation occurs when uh, you issue very short-term or demandable instruments, like a deposit or, um, say, commercial paper, um, and you use it to fund longer-term or less liquid um, assets. That exposes you to um, an inherent risk that your creditors are going to want their money back before you can liquidate or realize value on your assets in time. Such activities are, were often structured uh, in ways that avoid regulation and capital requirements um, imposed on banks. Any firm that, imp uh, that does this maturity transformation exposes itself to risk because in financial distress, creditors could pull back rapidly uh, from the firm if they lose confidence in, in the firm's assets. Creditor runs uh, where they pull their money out of a firm uh, are exactly the kind of events that typically elicit official support because if no support's forthcoming, then the creditors of other similar firms are likely to run on that firm as well. Interve intervention by the government in the event of a run outside the banking system is attractive to policymakers. It's irresistible sometimes as much as they find it distasteful because it can stabilize creditors' expectations regarding future intervention. Precedents set by the intervening outside the banking system provide further impetus for the growth of fragile arrangements outside the banking system. Uh, they provide a, a, an artificial subsidy for this fragility-prone pr maturity transformation in the shadow banking system. And it's beyond uh, the scope of prudential regulation, and yet it's likely to benefit from government support. Measuring the size of the shadow banking system is difficult, but some have, have estimated it at about uh, $20 trillion uh, at its peak, roughly twice, twice the size of the traditional regulated banking system. So an instructive case in point that will illustrate uh, what's going on, this dynamic in the shadow banking system, is the market for repurchase agreements. And I know that's a technical finance term, uh, but if you've read books about the Bear Stearns, any, if you've read any book that covers in a narrative form this crisis, you will have come across uh, repurchase agreements. The, the popular lingo for this is repos, uh, or RP. So I'll, I'll use the term repos, um, not to be confused with the Emilio Estevez movie uh, several years ago. <laughs> Repo man, uh, so it no, has nothing to do with used cars. Um, a, a repo is essentially a short-term collateralized loan, uh, and it's structured as a purchase by the lender of the asset today, followed by a repurchase by the borrower of the same asset uh, with uh, some interest tacked on to the price um, at the maturity of the loan. Uh, a haircut is typically applied to provide the lender with a buffer uh, in case the borrower can't repay the loan or the value of the collateral slips. Now, many uh, repos uh, mature in just one day uh, and are typically rolled over day to day to day. So it's, it's a source of ready cash for large institutional investors and money market funds. They park their money there. They roll it over. If they need it, they can pull it out. If they don't need it, they just leave it and let it roll. The most common form of repo, uh, settlement takes place on the books of one of the two giant government securities clearing banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, Bank of New York Mellon. They lend money to the borrowers every morning to let the borrowers fund 
the maturing loans and buy back their collateral. The borrowers then use the collateral to trade during the day. These are typically U.S. Treasury securities, but they can be other things. And then at the end of the day, they fund this via, via repos. They get money in from lenders, and the lender's money is used to repay the, the big clearing banks. And that, that dynamic's important in the narrative around uh, Bear Stearns. So the repo market, just to give you a sense, is about $2 trillion in size, fairly substantial market. So this transaction has many benefits. Lenders are often, as I said, institutional investors, money funds, corporations. They're prohibited, as I said, from earning interest on deposits. So it's a great way for them to get a return on their money um, on an investment that's just as liquid as a bank deposit. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, evidence, uh, you know, number one, uh, for uh, of the shadow banking system. This is the core of what people call the shadow banking system. Borrowers obtain the ability to finance a broad range of assets at lower cost than they would have to pay if they needed to issue longer-term debt or, or raise equity in some form or another. But re repo financing exposes the borrower to tremendous risk if the lenders refuse to roll over their repo positions or the borrower has a hard time uh, selling their assets. This was the essence of the situation facing Bear Stearns in the days leading up to the decision on the morning of March 14th, Friday, March 14th, 2008, by J.P. Morgan Chase that they were unwilling to extend credit to Bear Stearns to allow them to um, unwind uh, their uh, overnight repos and repay uh, their repo lenders. Without government support, the fear was that repo lenders would also pull back from large, other large investment banks, like Bear Stearns, out of a belief that they too would not, were now less likely to receive government support. So the fear was that if the Fed didn't support Bear, uh, investors would come to the conclusion that they would not support other large investment banks, like Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and so on up the line. So intervention by the Fed stabilized markets by implying a commitment to intervene to prevent other investment banks from, from borrowing. The breakdown in the re repo market in 2008 was due in large measure to the deterioration in the value of collateral at weak firms. Uh, much of the collateral was in the form of housing-related uh, debt. And that brings me to the, the, the next portion of my talk, which has to do with uh, innovation in home mortgage lending. And so I'm going I'm to be talking about the question, why did housing prices rise and drop so sharply, and what should we do to reform housing finance policy? And it's related to this issue of financial innovation. So there's, there is a need, I think, for continued research into the precise causes of the housing boom and bust that um, led to this recent crisis we've been through. But even given that, the need for further research, I think that the, a broad narrative is relatively clear. Financial institutions benefited from implicit government guarantees, as I've described. Notably, the government-sponsored housing enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, plus several large U.S. and European banking institutions. Their demand uh, for securities backed by subprime mortgages was fueled, to some extent, by the view that they were implicitly backed by the government. These institutions were... Uh, widely viewed as likely to get support in the event of a, a dramatic uh, financial crisis. That implied backstop led them and their creditors to underweight, to undervalue 
uh, the risk of a broad nationwide downturn in housing markets, since that would be the circumstance that would be most likely to elicit official support to protect their creditors. This biased their risk preferences, and it had the effect of distorting the incentives of a range of other participants in the mortgage distribution chain, from credit rating agencies to securitizers to originators to loan brokers. The result was an oversupply of subprime mortgage lending that increased the demand for housing, drove up home prices, particularly in regions like California and Florida where the supply of buildable lots was relatively inelastic. The resulting surge in prices actually made subprime mortgage lending look profitable for a time because troubled borrowers could simply refinance after a couple of years using the rising equity in their own homes. When demand expansion reached natural limits, price appreciation slowed, then ceased, raising the cost of home ownership and increasing defaults among overextended borrowers. The rest, as they say, is history. Why did Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guarantee so many loans that became troubled, uh, ultimately resulting in those agencies being put into conservatorship? I've alluded to one very important cause. Uh, those institutions were perceived, and it turned out to be correct, uh, as being inside the safety net, as being uh, something that Congress would bail out when the push came to shove. As a result, they had much less incentive to provide sufficient scrutiny when evaluating many of the loans they guaranteed or the securities backed by subprime mortgages that they purchased. Others have argued that affordable housing mandates also encouraged Fannie and Freddie to acquire large amounts of securities backed by poorly underwritten mortgage loans. But I'd note that those mandates were really a byproduct of their, pre, um, their perceived status as government-supported. Fannie and Freddie were, a large, to a large extent, represented government-sponsored regulatory bypass. They were chartered explicitly to provide a secondary market for mortgages that otherwise would have to have been held on the books of banks and thrift institutions. As a result, the funding of those mortgages went around the banking system and thus escaped the associated regulatory safeguards. In addition, the two GSEs have been especially active in making 30-year loans requiring relatively small down payments. A non-trivial share of houses financed in that matter eventually went into foreclosure or were put up for short sale. So a consensus has emerged that Fannie and Freddie need to be wound down in some fashion. Uh, one way to do this would be to shut them down immediately, cold turkey as it were. While this has some appeal, I don't think it's politically feasible and I don't think it's economically desirable e either. Uh, such an approach would require an overly dramatic and overly rapid adjustment in housing financial arrangements around the country. Um, and the housing market is still going through, is still experiencing the aftermath of the bust I talked about. And so I, I don't think a, a cold turkey approach makes sense. In February, uh, the Department of Treasury and the Department of Housing and Urban De Development issued a report to Congress outlining ways to uh, wind down both institutions and create the conditions for private capital to play a predominant role in housing uh, finance. Among their proposals were to increase the guarantee fees, to bring in more private capital, reduce the conforming loan limits, uh, wind down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac investment portfolios. As the agency's report states, Fannie and Freddie, quote, were allowed to behave like government-backed hedge funds, managing large investment portfolios for the profit of their shareholders, while the risk ultimately 
uh, falling largely on taxpayers. I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment, and I think it's a mistake that must not be repeated. Winding down Fannie and Freddie is a vital first step in my view, but a more contentious question occurs, uh, concerns the future of housing finance policy. For decades, the federal government has promoted home ownership. Uh, it's done so uh, by subsidizing debt, subsidizing mortgage-related, housing-related debt, both through the unpriced implicit guarantees I've described for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, but also through the home mortgage interest de deduction, much, much beloved in the United States. That created an, an environment that accelerated innovations in the provision and packaging of home-related debt, but it discouraged prudent safeguards against the risk of large shocks in the housing market. It shouldn't be surprising then that we actually experienced a large shock in housing finance markets and that that led to a broader crisis in financial markets, largely as a result of financial innovations that circumvented banking regulations and exploited the implicit safety net. Other countries have demonstrated ways in which the government can promote home ownership by subsidizing equity instead of debt, such as through tax-preferred treatment of savings vehicles that can be used for down payments. More fundamentally, though, uh, apart from this question of whether you want to subsidize housing through ho subsidizing housing debt rather than equity or some other means, more fundamentally, though, I think we ought to rethink whether the government should be in the business of subsidizing home ownership at all. It may be true that home ownership yields some positive uh, externalities. Uh, for instance, on the margin, homeowners po probably do take better care of their dwellings, contribute more to civic vibrancy on some dimensions than non-homeowners. But it's not clear how large those differences are, nor is it clear that how much those differences are worth. We have to remember that foreclosed properties also bring externalities, although these, in, in these cases the externalities are negative ones. While buying a home is a desirable option for many households, renting may be just as desirable for other households that prefer greater financial and locational flexibility. Households should make uh, these decisions based on their own particular uh, circumstances, including, among other things, their expected earnings, the variability of their earnings they expect over time, and the value they place on mobility. So let me summarize. Uh, financial innovations, like all innovations, can e be either be good or bad, depending largely on the incentives facing potential innovators. Outside the financial system, innovators' incentives are generally well aligned with the interests of consumers, the ultimate beneficiaries of the innovative process. The heavy regulation of the financial system, though, can distort incentives and can lead to detrimental rather than beneficial innovation. Broadly speaking, the government's role in financial markets involves two things providing a safety net, both explicit and implicit, and prudential regulation to counteract the moral hazard effect of such backstops. Financial stability requires a close match between the scope of the safety net and the scope of counteracting prudential regulation. The recent financial crisis has caused, was caused by large gaps between the scope of prudential regulation and the scope of the safety net, which had grown to cover nearly half of the financial sector because of the dynamics induced by safety net ambiguity. When the boundaries of the safety net are unclear, withholding support from a failing institution always looks too risky to policymakers. In the presence of such gaps, innovation was drawn towards bypassing regulation and exploiting uh, safety net protection. Safety net ambiguity thus distorted financial innovation, 
in a way that made the financial system more risky and more prone to financial crises. Actions taken during the recent crisis have set precedents suggesting a dramatically expanded safety net, 62% of financial sector liabilities according to the conservative estimate I cited earlier. This diagnosis implies that the first reform priority should be to establish clear and credible boundaries around the federal financial safety net in a way that conforms the extent of the safety net with the extent of prudential regulation. Now this leaves open, of course, whether to do this by expanding regulation to encompass a broader safety net or by contracting the safety net to, to a more tightly drawn boundary around uh, a set of well-regulated institutions and let, letting market forces uh, guide the rest. This choice depends on trade-offs that are really beyond the scope of this address. My broad sense, however, is that we would be far better off if we were to significantly scale back the boundaries of government-managed portion of our financial sector to include fewer institutions and fewer liabilities. It's not healthy when, in effect, profit Profits are privatized and losses are socialized. Countervailing regulatory and supervisory regimes are inevitably imperfect and impose costly burdens of their own. As I noted earlier, establishing credible safety net boundaries will likely require that policymakers permit the failure of an institution that was previously believed to be too big to fail. This could involve serious short-term disruptions. In fact, it may be that the more costly the disruption, the greater the enhancement of the credibility of the commitment to a limited safety net. But the long-term benefits could be huge. When thinking about this issue, I'm reminded of the history of monetary policy in the late 1970s and 80, early 1980s. At the time, the country was experiencing both high unemployment and high rates of inflation. The Fed, under the leadership of Paul Volcker, our chairman then, steadfastly pursued a path to bring down inflation. It was, in many ways, a very painful course of action because the economy went through a very significant recession in 1981 and 1982. But the economy did recover and did proceed to grow relatively briskly, while the Fed credibly established that it would pursue price stability and was committed to do so. The short-term pain of scaling back the monetary accommodation of the 1970s was worth its cost. I think the same would be true of an effort to scale back and set credible boundaries around the federal financial safety net. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Would permitting the failure of these lenders likely oh. have the long-term effect that you would hope to see? Yeah, so um, on the first one, um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac operate an in, a, sort of a distributional infrastructure for mortgages. They They buy mortgages. There's a you know, the system for electronically submitting the paperwork, the underwriting, all that goes along with that and packaging up and a legal infrastructure that goes with that, that, that would be disruptive to immediately remove. Now, the private sector is perfectly capable of providing that infrastructure, but a smoother and more orderly transition would be, uh, would provide a better, uh, better outcome for everyone. Um, so they, they were allowed to fail. Um, and they were taken over. Uh, they're in receivership, government receivership. Um, the, the critical thing, to some extent the word failure is a distraction because the critical thing is how are creditors treated in the failure? So uh, there's failures and there's failures in essence. Um, I, the, the critical question becomes how would, uh, the, in, in the long term, markets fare 
if, if they had been allowed to fail in a way that their creditors were forced to absorb some of the losses. Instead, taxpayers have picked up about $150 billion of those losses, by far the largest part of the federal government cost of this um, financial crisis. I think it would have set, um, you know, bold and, and very important uh, uh, precedent. Uh, and I think doing that for a similar large institution, um, allowing the mechanisms that we've evolved for centuries that we know as bankruptcy, uh, that achieve an orderly sorting out of, of which assets um, are apportioned to which creditors, I think should be allowed to work. And allowing that precedent for a large financial institution have a very important um, send a very important message to creditors, investors. Thank you very much, Mr. Lacker. Uh, I believe that Harvey, uh, a fellow banker. Uh, so to speak. I guess they come from different disciplines, but all in the banking industry. What are your thoughts on that? And, um, you know, very good question. Fannie and Freddie were originally uh, formed to make housing and housing ownership affordable and accessible to um, uh, more people in America. And the problem became it became too affordable and too accessible. And so when you look at that there's 71 million homes in America, 58 million have mortgages, and that adds up to $11 trillion. And so, you know, when you look at the impact that a, uh, you know, the mortgage industry has on the economy, you know, it's definitely something that, um, you know, has failed us, but, but something that, you know, as Dr. Lacker said, you know, can, can be resolved. Very good. The next question is directed at Secretary Eagleburger. I think this is uh, this is probably a question that everybody has asked or talked about at a, at a dinner party or whatnot. And uh, the question is this: Why do we not demand repayment for our expenses when we go to war and defend these countries in conflicts such as defending Kuwait with oil that we uh, the money that we that we desperately need? We we go and do all these things for these other countries. Sometimes it's in U.S. interest, but why don't we make them pay? Beats the hell out of me. <laughs> no. First of all, because uh, we have, we haven't, because our leadership has not felt that it was appropriate. And to a degree, depends. For instance, on the Kuwait issue, when uh, Saddam took it over, and then we went in and freed it. The question is, who would we have asked to pay for it with us? Uh, I suppose the Kuwaitis, and in fact, there we should have asked for some because they have a fair amount of oil. But uh, And we did get some money out of the Kuwaitis, by the way, for that. But you've asked a very good question, and the best answer I can give you is that traditionally it hasn't been done. For example... How would you, let's go back to World War II. How would you have billed the British and the, <clears throat> and the uh, French and so forth, for uh, our allies at that point, for having done what we did? The fact of the matter is that what we should have done and did do, but only to a degree, was insist upon reparations from the Germans and the, and the Japanese. Uh, again, nowhere near as much as we had spent, but the basic point was, I suspect the best way to answer it is, it's not something we Americans in government, at least, have on most occasions thought much about in terms of 
feeling that we had to be paid for what we'd done. And I can't really answer it any other way than to say this has, on occasion, it's been discussed, uh, but in most cases, in, in the past at least, it has not been thought an appropriate thing to do. But now I'm coming, I will only come back for one moment to say, as I tried to indicate earlier, we are in a time of change. There is no question about it. And it is a change in which the United States, if for no other reason than our own resource base, is going to have to be much more serious in thinking about how we're going to involve ourselves in these various conflicts that we don't have to become involved in. And that may be one of the uh, criteria that will have to be imposed, is that if we're going to do something, uh, we're going to have to figure out who it is we're going to charge for at least some of the expenses. And that I would, well, the Libyan thing is an example, but uh, there, here's, it also is an example in which the British and the French have in fact been footing part of the bill. So uh, I've taken much too long to answer a very good question for which there is no simple answer other than to say it's not something we've thought about very often. <laughs> Perhaps we should. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Judge Grubbs uh, with our next question because we've, we've heard a lot about um, folks doing a number of different incredible things with our world. But the legal process has bearing on all of that. We've talked about tort reform and other things. How do you see the legal process helping or hindering everything that folks here see happening that we've heard all morning uh, over the next five or ten years? is a tool, and uh, I think the process uh, follows innovation. I wish it were such that it could be current with innovation, but it's not. It, it follows innovation, and uh, if, if you look at technology now, that is a whole new area that the law has not been able to respond to because no, no, one, knows, no one knows how to respond to it. It's something that, that we have got to find our way. But it's the rule of civilized society, whether you are in uh, industrial matters, whether or not you're in economic matters, and it has a role to play. But we've got to develop that role. I think it's fair to say that as you've got to kind of be reactive. You do. Uh, think things will happen along the way, and those will raise legal issues, and then the court system has to have its due I wish process. We could be innovative, if you will. but mm -hmm. it's more reactive than it is innovative. And, and that's it's kind the, of the way. It's the nature. That's it's the, the nature. nature of the beast. They're very good. Thank you. Um, the next question is for Ron Smith. A recent NPR piece pointed out that uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, with a high tax rate, socialized medicine, and so forth, um, have had okay, uh, have had their uh, social safety net, and they have the highest per capita rate of entrepreneurs in the world. How does that compare to the situation we're facing in the United States? Uh, microphone, there we go. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that well, one of the strengths of the United States is, and always has been, uh, the ability of entrepreneurs to take chances and the abilities of, of the courts uh, and the bankruptcy system to take a second chance. So the United States has got a uh, – the legal system 
that is in place to support entrepreneurial ventures, and it's one of the significant strengths of this country. Uh, currently, and hopefully into the future, the, the key challenge will be access to finance and investment to support that and to get companies to commercialization. Uh, so the United States is a great environment for entrepreneurs. Uh, hopefully we can keep it going in the future. Very good. Thank you. I want to bring Frank Sims into our conversation here because, uh, and I listened to Frank's presentation at Ferrum College when he talked about all the energy that is generated, and, and Ron, please listen to this as well, all the energy that's generated with the hydroelectric power and, and uh, what a massive undertaking that is and, and how difficult it is to, to just maintain all of that, but, but also how effective it is. And, and Frank, I know you listened as Ron was talking about his, his new technologies. Uh, since you sort of have both of your feet in the camp of the technology we've relied upon historically, uh, what is your take on this new technology? How realistic do you think it is for the rest of us? And is this something that either uh, those of my generation or our, our Ferrum students will see in their lifetimes? Well, overall, I think the hydrokinetics um, as a new technology is becoming a very well-accepted technology in the United States. Uh, just coming from a conference in Washington over the past three days and talking about where are we going to go with energy, especially in the case of renewables and clean energy sources. And a key part of that is hydro generation. I'll tell Ron, yes, we do it the old way, you know, and we put in the reservoirs and so on. But the discussions of hydrokinetics are quite significant. What you're looking at is in a group, it's 80% right now is the target for clean energy sources under uh, President Obama's uh, proposal. And as part of that proposal, we, right now, hydro only represents 10% of the generation in the country. The goal in hydro is to increase that up to about 16%. To about 16%. There we go. And to get to that level, we're not going to see a lot in the way of dams being built or these types of things, but where you see a lot of that growth is going to come from will be from the tidal energies, the hydrokinetic energies, and the type of projects that Rob's talking about, or what they call a closed-loop pump storage type of system. All right. Very good. And Ron, your, your thoughts on that? Would you agree with? Yeah, it's, uh, it's taken a while, but uh, we're close, and we work with the Natu National Hydropower Association, and hydropower as a whole uh, is a significant, in the world, it's the most significant renewable energy source. So we do need to kind of continue to find ways to expand that, including, you know, supporting existing hydro facilities uh, to expand with new, new technologies and others. So there's a real opportunity in hydro as well as the kinetic hydropower uh, technologies. And is it not true also that it's very difficult to go around anymore with our current environmental concerns, um, building dams and creating reservoirs and, and all the, I mean, you've got, I've covered these in, as a journalist over the years. You've got to get, make sure that there's no historic or environmental impact. It, it's got to be almost impossible should you come up with a new project anymore to build a new dam or a new reservoir. Am I right? Or is impossible overstating it? <laughs> well, I haven't just gone through the licensing processes that I've gone through for the last few years, and it is extremely difficult, and it is quite an effort. But I think what you're going to see is that, again, especially on pump storage with the 
closed loop systems, uh, you're going to see licensing of those projects go quicker. Uh, they'll have less environmental potential or less potential environmental impacts and disturbance to the area. So I think you're, you are still going to see it. But as for what we recognize as the conventional hydroelectric facility, like Claytor or Smith Mountain or those types of projects, those type of facilities, you probably will not see a lot of new construction. But you'll see powerhouses on existing dams, for example. Very good. Uh, next question is posed to Dr. Lacker. It says, please explain why the Fed did not intervene or support Lehman Brothers, or was the failure to support a mistake in retrospect? Uh, first, a disclaimer. I wasn't involved in the decision about Lehman. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a difficult situation, and here I think, you know, you have to just thinking about accounts that you've read and, and put yourself in um, – uh, Secretary of Treasury Paulson's um, shoes uh, the week before he'd taken over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, over the summer, there had been uh, IndyMac, which had failed, a multi-billion dollar, um, heavily into home mortgages, and then you had Bear Stearns. Um, I, he, I, from accounts you've read, I mean, it's, it seems clear he did not want to, uh, his reputation to be the Secretary of Treasury who did a lot of bailouts. Uh, and so you can uh, you can sympathize with the notion that he wanted to try and draw a line, and I think that's a good idea. You know, let set an example, let some firm fail that, uh, you know, is potentially costly but establishes some boundaries around the safety net. Now, how, you know, whether you do that just one off or whether you articulate some clear principles so that people can extrapolate um, is another thing, and you can, you can certainly, um, you know, question um, – you know, whether it was sustainable or not. And then, but then two days later, you had AIG, where for various reasons, uh, they, were, they felt forced uh, to intervene. After AIG, um, it seems hard to picture a way to articulate a policy that explained everything that had been done and provided firm guidance about what would and would not be done in the future. So at that point, it was more or less time to throw in the towel, I think. And I think that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Hindsight being 2020, do you yes. think it would have happened the same way again, or do you think they'd go back and <clears throat> this time bail them out? I think ideally, um, you don't look at, at this one-off, at a, one at a time, institution by institution. I think there's a danger in that. You know, what you want to think about is is just the the regime you put in place, the pattern of behavior that you want people to believe you're going to stick to. And, and let them evolve against that. Let them optimize against that. Let them, uh, you know, calibrate their incentives against that um, so that, um, you know, there, there isn't as much risk built into the system the next time. And uh, what risk there is it can be handled manageably by, by the private sector through bankruptcy regime. Mm -hmm. Harvey, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, let me just add, I was not involved in the decision. <laughs> But I will say this, if we can uh, get back to having more accountability from everybody involved in the mortgage process, uh, not just the government, but from the person that applies for the mortgage to understand the terms and conditions, read the documents to the broker or bank that's offering the mortgage, that they would uh, understand the situation of the borrower and put them into the right kind of product to the investor and to the government that regulates it, that may have prevented, should hopefully prevent 
these uh, breakdowns in the future. All right, thank you. Next question is for Secretary Eagleburger. It says, please comment on the threat of terrorism and anti-American sentiment in Arab countries. And, you know, we talked about whether we can afford to do some of these things. We, last night at dinner we were talking a little bit about whether we could afford it or not, but where is the American interest in there? And there may be some crossover there. But what is the, uh, if you would comment on the anti-American sentiment and, and where America has to draw its own line in the sand. Well, when it comes to the question of drawing our own line in the sand, I personally, this is where I'm going to go against everything I've already said to you. But when it comes to specific acts of terror against Americans, and I emphasize Americans, I think to the degree we know who the perpetrator is, we ought to come down on them like a ton of bricks, and within the first 24 to 48 hours, if we can do it. And if we can kill them, all the better. I'm quite serious here. To me, and this is something we haven't made clear, and it's, and I'm talking now simply about terrorist acts against Americans. So, uh, but and if you, oftentimes we don't know who the perpetrator is, and therefore you have to be careful. I can't say you do this in every single case, but when you know that the terrorist himself or herself is acting has acted against an American, uh, and. That to me, the, the one thing we should do as soon as we can, at least, and we ought to establish it as a principle immediately, now, is that when we can and when the resources to do something are readily available to us, uh, I think we ought to go down, uh, react against that terrorist act as fast as we can. And I frankly think if we start doing that, you'll find that the acts of terrorism against Americans are likely to reduce, not increase. Now, as to the general question of attitudes in the Middle East about the U.S. and so forth, I think that is a question that is well, it, it constantly changing. I think, there, I think you have to start with one fact, however, and that is that uh, radical Islam is anti-U.S., period. Uh, if you are, and this is radical Islam now, not necessarily all, all uh, practicers of the religion, but uh, if you're in the radical group, I think you just, you can assume that they are all anti-U.S., and I think the evidence is fairly clear in that regard. When it comes to the more general question of attitudes in the Middle East, I think that is, you can overdo that, I think, and I think we're seeing it to a degree right now. I don't find any Libyans that are arguing against, I mean, any, any anti-Qaddafi Libyans who are arguing, arguing against U.S. intervention on their behalf. Now, that doesn't mean that they would love us forever, but it does mean that the, this hard, fixed view of that almost all Arabs are anti-U.S. and dislike the U.S., I think, is a mistake. I think there's a fair amount of flexibility there. And interestingly enough, although I have to be careful how I say it, I think there is an increasing uh, desire in that part of the world on the part of any number of people and institutions to, in fact, draw on U.S. experiences in the field of, of uh, democracy, if you will. 
I, I do some work with uh, Larry Sabato up in uh, <coughs> in Charlottesville, and he has he is just initiating a program which I'm going to be involved in of bringing over some ten uh, people from a Muslim a model Eastern country. We're not sure which one yet, but anyway from the Middle East, and uh, we're going to spend some time, and this is in response, by the way, it's interesting, it's in response to some attitudes expressed to us from Middle Easterners, that if, bring us on over and let us get some ideas on how you make democracy work, and then maybe we can take that back and begin to in introduce into the, the society, if you will, some of those concepts and to me, it's the only way in the Middle East where you may, over time, achieve something in the way of, uh, of a more democratic regime, although I think it's going to be very, very difficult. But if it's going to work at all, it's got to be from the bottom up. And it's this kind of a program that I'm talking about <clears throat> that I think may, over time, begin to get some uh, tra traction in the Middle East that will improve relations attitudes, rather, toward the U.S. So I guess the best I can say is that while I do not think we are the most popular country in the world over there, I do think that when you could contrast it, and this works, by the way, when you contrast it with uh, the, the past history of the British, the French, and any Western European country, including Germany in its era, uh, the antagonism toward the colonial era and toward the colonial countries is is still down there. It's it's a piece of their existence that you don't find in terms of attitudes toward the U.S. You'll find some serious problems in terms of particular time now of the way we are conducting ourselves abroad. But uh, that it's not the deeply ingrained anti-colonial spirit of so many of those countries. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. Uh, we have a question um, for Judge Grubbs. We hear a lot about tort reform. What are your opinions about the issue, and where can the courts perhaps become uh, more efficient? Tort reform surfaces often during political campaigns. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a hot political <laughs> issue. And for those of you who are not really familiar with tort reform, it's a process to modify a system of civil jurisprudence to either limit awards for damages or to limit excess awards. I think the law, as any other institution, should always be open to innovation. Uh, personally, tort reform, as I say, is a political football that, that is moved back and forth. And its roots are economic. And the theory is, I believe, that if one limits awards to people who have been injured or wronged, then it will somehow or another bring down the cost of uh, uh, medical uh, issues. Tort reform, most likely, uh, is recognized in the area of medical malpractice. That's where most of us see that. And uh, as you know, the cost of uh, uh, medical services are increasing uh, daily. And this is one theory that may bring those costs down if, in fact, you limited uh, uh, liability awards. 
Uh, in Virginia, we have a, uh, a limit on malpractice awards of $2 million. Uh, that has changed from time to time. Every time the legislature gets together, and not only Virginia, but every other state, particularly in a political year, that's going to be tossed about. But the theory behind that really is to limit recovery for wrongs that have been committed either to an individual or to property damage. Thank you, Judge. Um, Harvey, this next question is directed at you. We've kind of been talking about the economy at 20,000 feet, and we have a question about the current housing market. Uh, where do you see it going? What is the status? When will people be able to either buy a house or sell a house? And, and, and how do you see things turning out over the next few years? Well, as many of you know, in southwest Virginia, you know, if you look at your property values the last 10 years, it hasn't spiked really high as other places in Virginia and across the country, but it also hasn't been impacted as negative as other places in Virginia and across the country. So I can say that in encouraging uh, that we are seeing today an increase in activity, an increase in the buy and sale of real estate, uh, not just on the commercial side, but also on the residential side. And, um, you know, what um, Warren Buffett will say is, you know, you, you buy low and you sell high. So this might be an opportunity for uh, some individuals uh, to uh, take advantage of this real estate market and find uh, good opportunities to, to purchase your home. All right. Thank you very much. And our final question, um, and, and what I'd like to do is just kind of run right down through the panel. 30-second response on each one. One question. But, um, and and we, everybody up here has talked about regulation in one way or another, even with Judge Grubbs, who, you know, in a sense is the legal system is regulation, um, but, but not from a government standpoint, per se. But, uh, the, and the question is, is because we've got a gas crisis and we've got guys up here who have ways to create energy, but both of them struggle with all of the, the red tape that they have to get through, why hasn't alternative energy, or let me just take it from alternative energy, why hasn't the government gotten, and actually, why hasn't the government gotten out of the way and let people do this so we can have more abundant energy? Why make it so difficult? And, and, or should, or argue in favor of regulation, either one. And I'd like to hear from each panelist 30 seconds. Okay, I'll start. Uh, it's directly at me. The <clears throat> regulation is, in, in our industry, certainly is needed. I mean, the environment needs to be protected. For me and for us, our industry, it's a question of proportionality. Uh, you know, you, everybody has a job to do, and we take our job seriously, and we're focused on that. So there's often a single focus uh, that does not take into effect the proportional, the proportional risk that needs to be regulated. And so the ability to get to have some flexibility in terms of the regulatory process is important, I think. All right. Not Dr. often Biker. called upon to uh, comment on energy policy um, well regulation uh, you you, you, regulation you talked about all of the uh, all of the issues that guide and how you have to be a very tightly regulated right so um, I mean about it I will comment about energy if you want if you like sure that you can comment um, on energy or banking either one but I think regulation yeah. is the question so regulation in general involves uh, you know trade-offs where someone's ox is going to be gored some regulations that kind of look um, puzzling from uh, the point of view of consumers' well-being are, are really put in place because somebody wants to benefit at someone else's expense. Um, you know, there's concentrated benefits and very diffuse costs. 
Um, in the energy business, it's, you know, I, I think we'd all like to see some of these alternative energy sources succeed. Um, the fact that, as, you know, as Ron admitted, his, his technology is pre-commercial, meaning it's more expensive than other energy sources, it means that there's an extra cost to pay, whether there's a ben hidden benefit behind that that justifies subsidies to bring it down is a complicated matter, and I, you know, it's beyond my, my expertise. Um, in the financial world, there's um, plenty of instances of people s seeking to shift costs from one part of the payment system to another, from one part of the banking system to the other, from some types of consumers to other. And I think that, um, that makes some regulations uh, superficially attractive um, but actually uh, end up sort of impeding uh, the financial system's ability to serve our people well in the end.